This morning, I want to start a new series. It's going to be called Looking to Jesus, and it is going to open up a longer study through the book of Hebrews. And as I was considering what passage to go to this morning on Resurrection Sunday, I was drawn, of course, to a passage of Scripture that would address the resurrection. But not just the narrative account of the resurrection, but really the meaning of the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection. And I can't think of a more appropriate text to go to than the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews is an epistle that was written to a group of Jewish Christians who had been tempted to be lured away from their clear understanding of the resurrection of Christ and all that that entails and purchase for them, and to go back to a ceremonial system of external religious practices. And so what the author of the epistle of Hebrews wants to do is direct their eyes off of those matters and back onto Christ, to put their eyes on Christ, to follow Christ, to remember Christ, to make much of Christ. And that is what this epistle does from start to finish. If you were to look for an overall occasion and purpose for the writing, I think that what you'll find is that an author whom we don't know, it's unclear who wrote the epistle, but this author was writing to Jewish Christians, likely in Jerusalem and also dispersed around the Roman Empire, who had been tempted because of persecution either to go back to the religious ceremonies of Judaism or some that already had and they were feeling pretty proud for how well they were doing in terms of following the external religious system and conforming to those rules. What the author wants to do is pull them back lest they drift. Pull them back lest they discard their faith. Pull them back lest they prove to never have really truly been converted. It's a letter that breaks down quite simply into large sections. If you were to look for like an overall outline, it would be this. It begins with talking about the supremacy of Christ over the prophets. We're going to see that today in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. But then the author quickly moves to the supremacy of Christ over the angels. And that will take us all the way from chapter 1, verse 5, and all the way through chapter 2. And then he directs his attention towards the law and towards Moses. And he says, Christ is greater than the law. He is greater than Moses. And that's in chapter 3 and 4. And then he turns his attention to the priests, to Aaron and to Melchizedek. And he describes how Christ is is greater than them as a high priest in chapters 5 through 7. Then he says Christ is even greater than the old covenant, than all the religious ceremony and all of the civil theocracy that the Jews had grown up under. And we learn that in chapter 8 through chapter 10, verse 18. And then the author pivots, and it becomes very practical And he unpacks for us the implications of the gospel. And he says, if you really understand the supremacy of Christ in this, it will transform your faith, chapter 10, 19, all the way through chapter 11, your hope in chapter 12, and your love in chapter 13. Your faith, your hope, and your love. All of these 
virtues cultivated and growing because of your understanding of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. So, the series, Looking to Jesus, the first in these three messages, we'll call it the mystery of Christ. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Hebrews chapter 1. I provided for you in the bulletin a translation that I think might be a little bit more in keeping with what the author intended. So I'll be using that, but you can also follow along in your copies of God's Word, Hebrews chapter 1. This is God's Word. Long ago, at many portions and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the ages. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. What I'd like you to notice this morning in the passage that was just read to you here is that the mystery of Christ is revealed to us in two particular ways. When the Bible talks about a mystery, it doesn't mean something that is hidden, something uh, that has yet to be disclosed, something that you have to, to figure out, something you have to decipher and decode. There is no need for that. We don't have to go through some silly system of looking at the numbers in the Bible to try to determine where we are on some eschatological timeline. Uh, we don't need to delve into the Word of God and, and try to figure out what God's hiding from us and lean on teachers who have some higher knowledge than the rest of us would get from simply reading our Bibles. A mystery in the Bible is simply this. It used to be unknown, and now it is. It used to be unknown, and now it is. So whenever an author talks about a mystery, it's a mystery that's been revealed. In fact, most of the time, it only surfaces as a mystery because now that it's been revealed, you realize it was hidden before. And so here, the author is talking about a mystery of Christ that has been revealed, and he does that in two ways. The first one is in general revelation, verses 1 and 2. And the second is in special revelation, 3 and 4. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're certainly glad you're here. Uh, you are welcome here. But perhaps those two terms are new to you. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and they're still new to you. Let me briefly describe what they mean. The general revelation is the revelation of God in nature, in everything you see around you. From the mountains, to the lakes, to the sky, to the stars, everything that he has made everything that is held together by the word of his power, everything that according to Proverbs chapter 8 was created through his wisdom, everything that he made and sustains is all by him, points to him. 
In fact, in the book of Romans, if you're with us for that study, you'll remember that earlier Paul says that you are without excuse because all you have to do is to look around at the glory of creation and you must understand that there is a God who created this. It's not by accident. Special revelation, on the other hand, is the revelation that comes through His Word, uh, the revelation that comes through the prophets and through the poets and through those who wrote letters. The Word of God revealed through His words so that you understand it. He discloses Himself, reveals Himself, violates, as one theologian said, His own personal privacy in order that He might be revealed to you. And through that, we call it a special revelation, meaning you can't get that from nature. It has to come from His Word. And so my argument this morning is that at the beginning of Hebrews, the author is telling us that the mystery of Christ is revealed in both, both the general and the special revelation. So follow along as we look through this text, and I just want to explain it to you as best I can, as clearly as I can. First of all, through the general revelation. If you're to look at this in the original, it begins with the phrase, many portions and many ways. Now, both of those are unique to the book of Hebrews, those terms. They don't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. What the author is saying is that long ago, in the old days, God communicated, but it was piecemeal. He, he communicated here and there. He, he communicated through, through this prophet and that poet and that writing and that vision, but it wasn't as cohesive. Somebody would come along and they would have a word from the Lord. They would be able to speak God's truth. But there were sometimes hundreds of years between those revelations. Uh, there were sometimes whole generations that would go without hearing from God. And he gave it in very different ways. Sometimes God spoke through a whirlwind. And sometimes God spoke through a donkey. Sometimes God spoke through men. Sometimes through women. And sometimes uh, God spoke from a burning bush. And other times God spoke through the fire. We don't know exactly why he chose to reveal things the way he did, but it was in various ways and in various little portions. That's a better translation. Little pieces here and there. But, the author says, all that's changed. That was all long ago. God spoke to our fathers that way by the prophets. But, verse 2, in these last days, and the last days, by the way, are the days after the ascension. Everything in the book of Hebrews hinges on the ascension, which hinges on the resurrection. You see, it's one thing to gather together on Resurrection Sunday and celebrate the fact that Christ rose from the dead. But it's something else to acknowledge and to remember that it is absolutely essential to remember that that body that rose from the dead was a physical body. Jesus says to his disciples, touch me. Not just so Thomas would have a moment where he feels bad for denying the resurrection and he could put his finger in the wrist and his fist in his side. It wasn't just to embarrass Thomas. Because the other disciples were told too to touch me. When he revealed himself at the Sea of Galilee, he made breakfast and he ate with them. All of this was meant to communicate something 
namely that he was risen from the dead and he was physical. I was listening to a brilliant sermon this week that was sent to me by a dear friend, and this sermon has become sort of a companion of mine. I've listened to it several times, and in this message, the preacher mentions that John Owen, one of the Puritan writers, said that it's an essential doctrine that we remember that Christ rose from the dead bodily and ascended bodily into heaven and is there presently in a body. He retained it. Why? Because all of that is symbolic of the reality that his work is finished and he has now entered into the very holy of holies of which the temple and everything that surrounded the ceremonial rituals of Judaism was a shadow and a copy. You see, Christ rose from the dead so that he could ascend. And now that he has ascended, we are in the last days. The last days don't mean the last few remaining days. There's a lot of talk of that Even now, there always is among certain preachers and groups of churches where every time an event happens in the world that seems a little unusual, they want to try to figure out where that puts us on the schedule of last day events. And they'll write books about blood moons, and they'll tell you that the invasion of Russia has something to do with Ezekiel 38, and they've got all of these tales they'll spin to try to excite Christians into maybe attending more often because you just never know we're getting towards the end. That's, that's not what we're talking about here at all. We're talking about the fact that there is nothing else in terms of the, the timeline of redemptive history. What we await for is that trumpet blast when he comes out from having given everything necessary to secure his own. And the jubilee begins and he comes back for his people. These are the last days that we're in. And in these last days, he has spoken to us, and that should be us all, by his Son. The Son is the one who has spoken to us. Uh, This revelation of Christ in human form. And it is this one who was appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world, in some translations. But you could translate that, the ages of infinity. That sounds like a cooler translation, doesn't it? The ages of infinity. Here's what he's saying. In these last days, he hasn't just revealed to us something in creation, but he has revealed by sending his own son into the world, the world that that son created, that by doing so and planting him here and revealing him as God of very God, truly God, truly man, he places his feet on that earth that he has created and he says, it is mine along with everything else in the universe. Far be it from us to imagine Christ merely in his humiliation, the incarnate one, and forget to see him in his glorification, the risen one. The risen one, not made the heir because he wasn't the heir already, but made heir in the sense of made visible as the heir, the one entitled to everything in the world that he has created. And so he plants his feet firmly in the universe that came out of the word of his power. The very same universe, according to the book of Colossians, that he is sustaining every single moment. 
The very universe that he will recreate in the new heavens and the new earth when he comes back to rule and reign forever with his people. When a saint dies, they go to be with the Lord, but that's only until the Lord comes to be with us. The end of redemptive history is not us floating around in heaven playing harps. The end of redemptive history is heaven coming down to earth at his presence with us forever on the new earth in a new heavens, in new bodies to experience the same corporeal physical form that Jesus does today. Beloved, we have a very physical future awaiting us. And Christ is the foreshadowing of that. He is the heir of it all because he created it all. It is his. He owns it. And so the fact that authors translate this world is a bit confusing to me. It really ought to be the ages to infinity, meaning he has created everything, including matter, including time, including space, including energy, including everything that makes up everything in everything that you could ever imagine. Everything related to time and matter, everything related to force and energy and space, everything related to everything he created. Now, don't even try to imagine that because it's going to give you anxiety. Just take it at face value. That's what he said, and it's true. And he's upholding it by his power. You see, the mystery of Christ is revealed even in general revelation because What's revealed is who created it, and who sustains it, and who owns it, and who will one day come back to redeem it. Now, the second thing that we see in the mystery of Christ revealed is in special revelation, and that's in verses 3 and 4. Notice here that he is the radiance of the glory of God. And I'm going to need to slow down a little bit with these terms. I want to make sure you understand them. He is the very radiance, the very reflection, the very visible lightning bolt of God himself. He is God. He doesn't merely reflect him like a mirror reflects something. It's something separate and independent. He is God made sensual. You can see, you can smell, you can touch, you can taste. He is God-made physical, God-made sensual. That's what it means to radiate. I don't know if uh, you experienced this yesterday or not, but wasn't yesterday one of those, even, even, for, even for, for Southern California, one of those unusually spectacular days? If you're visiting from out of state, I'm sorry. You don't have weather like we have. You might have better other stuff, but... (sighs) We put up with a lot (laughs) for our weather. (laughs) But it was one of those days yesterday where, where though I should have been perhaps reviewing my sermon, I, I should have perhaps been helping my wife who was preparing to have a multitude of people to our home for lunch. I, I just, at one point, I, I was drawn out to the, to the deck, and I just had to stand there in the radiance of the sun, just to feel it. Now, now, what I was feeling was the sun. You know that phrase we use, I feel the sun on my face? You don't really feel the sun, though, because if the real sun was on your face, 
you would, would not be something <laughs> that you look back on with a fond memory. But it is the sun. It's the visible, sensual feeling of that sun. Just made less enough that it doesn't consume you. Brothers and sisters, Christ is not a lesser God. He is not a creation of God. He is truly God, but as truly man, he was able then to be among us as God's radiance, shown very briefly on the Mount of Transfiguration to just a few disciples. And even that would not have been his full radiance and glory because it would have consumed them. So he is revealed in this special revelation in the Word of God as being the radiance. But he is also the exact representation of his nature. And that word exact representation, it only appears here, and it is a transliteration in our English word character. That's literally how you'd say it in Greek, character. And it was used to describe a stamp that was made in the wet, soft wax of a seal. Now understand the significance of this. In the the history of writing, if you were to handwrite a document, you may be able to write something that was very similar to the document you wrote, but it wouldn't be exact. Your handwriting would be slightly different. In fact, even if you wrote your own letter twice, it would be slightly different. But by the time of the advent of typeface that could be made out of metal, that stamp was then perfect. Every single time it was used, it was an exact representation. And that's how you made coins in the Roman Empire, so that every one looked the same. Here, the author of Hebrews is saying that Christ is that exact representation of God, but it's of his nature, of his nature, his hypostasis, his, his actual ontological being. It is him. It is his very essence, his very nature, his very person. I mean, in some ways, it's like an NFT of God, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> if you don't, don't worry about it. But it's a non-fungible representation of God. It can't be altered or changed. It is him in all of his nature, in all of his perfection, in all of his essence, exactly representing him, but in a form that is truly man. And so he revealed himself to us as the radiance of the glory of God. He never fell short of the glory of God. We did. Man did. We know man is a sinner, but we say that man fell short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that man and woman fall short of what God intends for them as the glorious reflection of their creator. He made them male and female together representing his nature, his image. We are image bearers together. You can't have the image of God without male or without female. You have to have both. They weren't created man and wife. They were created male and female. And only the woman taken out of the man from his flesh, representing the equality of these two natures together, representing the image of God. And when they fell, they fell from that glory. Christ never did. He was the perfect radiance of the glory of God and the exact 
character and imprint of his nature and substance. This word for nature, again, I love it. It is used later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 14 and 11, verse 1, to talk of assurance and confidence. It's a deed. It's a title deed. It is a certificate of authenticity. He is the unalterable uh, certificate of authenticity of God revealed for us in Christ. And it is him who upholds the universe by the spoken word of his power. This word isn't the word logos, it's the word rhema. It's the, it's the words that he uses as he speaks. The power of his voice to create and to sustain. And perhaps the most important thing in all of this section is what he did Revealed in general revelation as being the creator of all things. Revealed in special revelation as being the very son of God, his image and perfection. God of very God. But not only that, but he is God who did something. And what he did was make purification. Made purification. Now this, look, this looks back, if you will, to Leviticus 16. And in case you haven't made it yet to Leviticus 16 in your yearly Bible reading. I want to tell you what happens there. Leviticus 16 is the passage of Scripture where Moses is told to go and tell Aaron, who has just lost two of his sons because they were consumed by God, burnt to a crisp because they came to him in a way that was unworthy. And so uh, Aaron is now told, I want you to go and I want you to perform this ceremony to make the people right with God. And so it begins by Aaron taking a bull and sacrificing it for his own sin. I want to stop there for a moment. Aaron had to sacrifice for his own sin. He did it in the sight of the people. He killed that animal and he took the blood and he went into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled some of it on the mercy seat, which was the flat part on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And by doing that, he was making payment for his own sin. I was um, humbled by that this week as I meditated on it. Uh, because I'm not a priest. I don't stand between you and God, of course, in any way. But as the one who brings the word of God to you each week, it's a good reminder to me that I must come to you as one who must have his own sins forgiven, and one who must confess his own failures, one who must deal with the hardness of his own heart, one who struggles with his own pride, one who has his own temptations, one, one who should, in all points, <laughs> be able to empathize with any one of you. See, the, the priest had to do that. He had to show the people that he was just one of them. But then after that, after he had made purification for his own sin, there were two goats that were selected. And one goat was killed. And the other goat had the sins of the people laid upon it, as it were, symbolically. And then it was driven off into the wilderness. And that was the goat that was meant to show the atonement for the people's sin. It was driven off. Now what's interesting is that the goat that was killed, the blood was used to sprinkle the mercy seat not for the guilt of the sins of the people, but to cleanse the very ark of the covenant of God from being amidst a people that were so unclean. God had to cleanse his own temple because of the presence of the sinful people. So when Jesus comes and he makes perfect atonement, what he does is he brings the holy perfection of the very temple of God here to dwell among us. And it is never compromised. It is never once made to sin. 
Nothing sticks to him. He remains utterly pure and perfect his entire life, lives out all righteousness, fulfills the law perfectly, and then, because of that, lays down his life as the one who would make the atonement. But not to be driven off into the wilderness. Instead, to die visibly outside the camp. And then, to bring the blood of his own sacrifice into the very holy of holies at his resurrection and ascension that he might then make clear to all that there is no more need for sacrifices. So when we talk about the the purging here or the purifying, it harkens back to that imagery. And the people who were receiving this letter would have understood that because they were all very steeped in Hebrew tradition. After all, the letter is written to the who? Make the connection. They know Hebrew ceremony. They know Hebrew ritual. They know what this means. When it says that he's the one who had made purification for sins and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty, literally exalted, the exalted majesty. There is no way to describe God higher than this. He is the exalted majesty. And this sacrifice comes into the Holy of Holies and does something no priest would ever do. He sits down. Because it's finished. Brothers and sisters, there was no chair in the Holy of Holies. There was the ark. There were the other furniture in the Holy of Holies, symbolic of God's presence with his people and his light and the veil. But there was no chair. The priest didn't perform this ritual and then sit down because the priest was never finished. He moved constantly. He went through the rituals. He got in and he got out and he did it once a year. Christ, upon his resurrection and ascension, verifies for all of us through his, through his physical form that could be touched that the work was complete and it was acceptable to God. And he then ascends in that bodily form to bring that resurrected sacrifice, as it were, into the presence of the Holy of Holies and then sit down to be our advocate forever. No other sacrifice rose from the dead. No bull that was slain got up again. No lamb that was burned came back to life. Even people, many were resurrected, they were dead for a while and then came back to life like Lazarus, but none of them came back in a glorified form like Jesus. He is the first fruits of what's to come. What's to come? We're going to be like him. Resurrection Sunday is to be celebrated not just because it proves that Christ defeated sin and death and hell, but because it gives us a foreshadowing of what we're going to enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth forever when we are made like him. And so, verse 4, having become as much superior, word that means dominance or better, having become absolutely better to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, for a time, Jesus was made lower than the angels. Not in his being, but in his presentation. He came in humiliation. He came as one who would be rejected, one who would be killed. 
He came as one who, who did not have any glory in and of himself. He wasn't drawing people to himself by, by the majestic nature of his presence. No, he came in abject humility and for that season was made lower than the angels in terms of his visible prominence. But after he had accomplished the work that the incarnation was meant to accomplish, then he went back where he belonged and established himself at the right hand of the Father, equal to the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, equal and yet not commingled in all of their nature, present there forever with all the glory that he has had since before the foundation of the world. The resurrection is not just a victory over sin and death and hell. The resurrection is the reestablishment of Christ where he belongs. So that when we sing hymns, we don't envision the humiliated Christ of the incarnation. We sing these songs with to the best of our ability, the foreshadowing of what it will be like when he returns in all his glory to judge the living and the dead. And so therefore his name is more excellent than theirs. The mystery is revealed. It's revealed in the general revelation that this earth was created and sustained by him and in the special revelation that he is the very God incarnate, holding the world together by his infinite power, bringing purification to those who put their trust in him and then ascended back to the right hand of the Father to enjoy all the benefits that come to being the indisputed God of the universe. If you're here visiting with us this morning and you have yet to put your faith in that risen Savior, may I borrow the words of the writer to the Hebrews and say that while it is today, put your faith in Him, that you too might know what it is like to have all of your sin, past, present, and future, imputed to Him and His righteousness imputed to you, and the joy and assurance of knowing that you will never stand before Him with any fear, but only with great delight and joy. Because when He looks upon you, He sees only the work of His Son, in whom He is well pleased. Let us pray. Father, we do thank You for this beautiful truth. Such encouragement to our hearts as we consider what it means to celebrate on this Resurrection Sunday, the ongoing redemptive plan that you had put in motion before the foundation of the world. Father, you've been so good to us to send your Son because you loved the world in a very particular way. That those who put their faith and trust in him would not perish, but would have life from above. As we turn to listen to these testimonies in the waters of baptism today, pray that you would remind us that these are testimonies of you. Not just biographies of individuals, but testimonies to the glory of the gospel. When we stand before you in that great day, it will not be because of anything we have done, any works we have done, 
any aisle we walked, any card we signed, any prayer we prayed, any badges we've earned. The only reason that we will be able to enter into the joy of your rest will be because of what Christ did. And so we thank you for the privilege of celebrating that today. May you receive all the glory and honor. For it's your name we pray. Amen.